We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want Breaks free on the far side. Foot race, great speed. Gurley won't be caught. It took one play from scrimmage for sophomore Todd Gurley to take it 75 yards. Here's Chubb, and he's going to go over 100 for the 13th consecutive game. Congratulations, Nick Chubb. Now it's Michelle's turn running all the way. Gets to the edge. Sonny Michelle will send the Dogs home to the championship game. Now they go to the ground. Elijah Holyfield a stiff arm. Heading to the end zone. Touchdown, Georgia. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger. And that is a mouthful. That was Brent Musburger and Chris Fowler of ESPN. Vern Lundquist and Brad Nessler of CBS Sports, and a whole slew of Georgia running backs making plays. Could there be one in the Buffalo Bills' future? I don't know. You do like Elijah Holyfield a lot. I don't know, folks. That's the question we are all here to answer tonight. We have another packed show for you. This week, we are doing the, the Rock Pile Report draft preview series rolls on featuring Matt Waldman. Okay, Matt Waldman, renowned analyst. Rookie scouting portfolio. He's going to be joining us to talk all about this year's running back class. It's going to be a great conversation. I'm pumped and can't wait for it. Folks, before we dig into anything here tonight, I've got to, I've got to invite you out. The 2019 Buffalo Sports Potathon. It is this Saturday, April 6th at 3 p.m. over at the Rusty Buffalo. That's on Center Road in West Seneca, New York. It's like two miles from my house. Yeah, and it's 270 Center Road, West Seneca. Okay. This is, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's being produced by our friends over at Trainwreck Sports, and it's sponsored by 26shirts.com, 716 Sports, and a, just a bunch of other great sponsors. This is a charity event for BB&G Charities, which helps underprivileged children in the Buffalo area experience the joys of the outdoors. 
which I know, <laughs> Chris, you're not a Boy Scout. I was. I learned a lot. And just the leadership skills and the things that you learn in these types of programs, it sets you up. You, you learn things. You get life experiences that you wouldn't otherwise have. And that can be good for you long term. So it's a, it's a charity I'm, I'm wholly behind. I can totally understand you being a Boy Scout. I mean, where else are you going to find a father figure? <laughs> oh, you saw, oh, my God. My dad's going to kick your ass when he sees you. <laughs> Folks, it's, it's going to be a, a day full of panel sports discussion hosted by WGR 550's Nate Geary and Channel, Channel 4's Jenna Harner talking all things Buffalo sports. 20 bucks gets you three hours of open bar and pizza. If you just want to show up for the booze and the pizza and you don't care about me, that's fine. Okay? I fully support you coming down and having a drink with us. Meanwhile, we're going to be recording a show featuring all kinds of local sports writers, broadcasters, podcasters, and other personalities. You're even going to have Zach the Maniac from Trainwreck Sports talking UB basketball and arm wrestling people. Yeah, isn't he arm wrestling Nate? He's arm wrestling Nate Geary. That alone might be worth $5 just to come see that happen. Folks, we're going to have a great time. You, I, I urge you to come down, have a beer or five with Chris and I. We're going to be shooting video. We're going to be giving away Wise Guys Pizza gift certificates. It's going to be a great afternoon. Come on down the Rusty Buffalo at 3 p.m. April 6th. The theme of the day is 1990s throwback Sabres uniforms, the, the, the red and the black. I hope you all had a happy April Fool's Day. You know, everybody loves that holiday. Or maybe it's just me. I don't know. I love that holiday. I've never known it to be a holiday. Are you kidding me? Pranks are the best. <laughs> Is it known as an American holiday? I think it sh- it- if it's not, it should be. In fact, if anything, they should give people the day off for this. Because honestly, doing slightly mean things to other people for your own entertainment, I mean, that's... <laughs> Guys, I'm not going to lie. It's one of my favorite pastimes. I mean, we don't really... I mean, I don't really... I can't tell you the last time I pulled a prank on April April Fool's Day because, to me, April Fool's Day is my Aunt Chris's birthday and my brother's birthday. So you can't be mean because people you know have... Well, they don't live here. Like, I can't pull a prank on my brother. You can pull a prank on anybody. Not when, he don't, when he's not here. He lives in friggin' Kansas. Not just specifically them. Anybody. Anybody at all. That's the beauty of April Fool's Day. People you don't know can get pranked. All right, I'm going to go outside and cut your tires on your rental. <laughs> That's my prank. Folks, what got me thinking about this was this hilarious story that I read in Pro Football Talk. I mean, you want to talk about pranks? I'm all for them. Apparently, uh, McVay, they're the coach for the Rams, he's got a streak too. So, Sean McVay is out to dinner with uh, Cliff Kingsbury newly hired offensive guru, quote-unquote, head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, and former Texas Tech quarterback Patrick Mahomes. Now, McVay gets this idea in his head. He says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put one of, change one of my friend's names in my phone, a mutual friend of ours, to Roger Goodell. And then I'm going to... He knows we're all out to dinner together. So I, about halfway through the dinner, he tells his friend, listen, at about... 8.30, you're going to start blowing up my phone with angry text messages pretending to be Roger Goodell himself, the commissioner of the NFL, informing me that you know that I'm out to dinner with a current player when it's off-season, 
and another head coach from another from a division opponent, and you're going to accuse us all of collusion and say that we're losing draft picks. So, there, Chris, imagine that's a pretty good idea. Talk about hazing. Yeah, here's this rookie head coach who's out to dinner with a couple guys that he thinks are his buddies. He knows these guys, and all of a sudden he gets told by Sean McVay, "Dude, I, we're, we're each losing our first round draft picks. Look, the text messages from Roger Goodell himself." And apparently Kingsbury shit his pants. And McVeigh was like, you have to call your GM right now and tell him before he finds out from ESPN. <laughs> apparently he had, they had him dead to rights and they had to, they had to stop him from calling the GM before they blew in the prank. Now that is how you pull, that's how you get one over on somebody, Chris. Yeah, that, that sounds a pretty, like a pretty good prank. And doesn't that sound like fun? Yeah, it does. It does. Fresh, fresh head coach, probably pissing his pants. See, I can't believe that you don't subscribe to a line of thinking that says, hey, this sounds like fun. Because I got to tell you, I feel empty inside. This year was the first April Fool's Day where I was just too busy. I was just too busy. I had too much going on. Nobody got pranked this year. I feel empty inside. I feel like I'm missing something. Like, I want to go sit and listen to Air Supply and just think about my life. For about five minutes? I couldn't even tell you an Air Supply song. I mean, Chris, a person like me, the problem is I have so many good ones. And it sucks because this is the one time you're doing mean things to people is sanctioned. Chris, one of my favorite... I mean, look, here's, I guess, the other thing. Now, what McVeigh did was... He, it was humorous, right? Yeah. There, there was some levity to it, and he stopped it before it went too far. That is the, the, the perfect prank. There's a science, because pranking people, there's a fine line between, hey, it's a harmless prank that's funny, or hey, you're just a massive jerk-off, okay? It's a fine line. If I put sugar in your gas tank, I'm just being a jerk-off. If I throw an old tuna fish sandwich in your glove box in the middle of summer, <laughs> now that's, a, that, that's funny. Tell me you don't find the humor in that. Yeah, I don't know if there's enough trees to get that smell out. <laughs> no, no, there is not. Ah, oh, Chris, I've got a whole arsenal of them. You know, the orange gel in people's toothbrushes, uh, the, the mayonnaise-filled donut. You ever seen that one? I've not seen the mayo donut. Well, you better watch your ass because there's one for all you listeners out there. If, there's, if you ever want to prank anybody, this is the godfather of all pranks because you can do it at any time, anywhere. A house party, someone invites you over for a football game. We're all familiar with chicken bouillon cubes, okay? My prank is called the chicken noodle shower, Okay. You take these bouillon cubes, you unscrew someone's shower head, and you put chicken bouillon cubes in there, and you just re-screw it to the thing, and you walk away. You walk away. The next time someone in that house tries to take a shower, you think about it. You wake up in the morning, you're half awake, you turn the hot water on, it runs for a few minutes, and then you get in there and you start soaping up. And in your half-awake stupor, it's going to slowly dawn on you that something smells like soup. Something smells like Campbell's Chicken and Stars. And then you're going to realize just how greasy you feel. And that's it. There is no getting that stank off you. It's in your hair. It's on your skin. You're going to walk around all day like a can of Progresso. Chris, it's one of my favorite. And that's, I guess, my point. No one gets hurt. It doesn't maim anybody. You just stink for an entire day. Tell me that's not a great prank. That sounds like a great prank. I can tell you, the only prank that I remember doing that comes to mind... I don't even think it was an April Fool's prank, but I just 
I knew uh, this woman that owned a hair salon, and she hired a new stylist. And then I went in for a uh, for a haircut, and uh, just creepily hit on her the whole time. <laughs> that was like See? the whole pr- that was the whole prank. See, folks. This, and this was in in Atlanta in the summer, and I made sure on my drive there, I turned my air off, windows up, so it was just, I just hotboxed myself, and then I just had huge sweat rings. And uh, See, yeah. folks, there's a fine line. Chris just established it for us, the difference between- It was hilarious. Funny prank and being a jerk. Chris, thank you for proving my point. For those of you out there- Want to, want to toss any other prank ideas back and forth at Rockpile Report on Twitter? Go ahead and hit us up. This week, we are going to kick things off with the Bills News Update. Mr. Pagula goes to Albany. Now, folks, this is a headline that didn't, it didn't get a whole lot of play with all the draft conversation going on last week. The owners' meetings were happening. You know, there, there was a lot of things. I mean, Chris, why do people want to talk to coaches during a breakfast at the owners' meetings? First and foremost, there was a huge deal made about Sean McDermott not being available at the coaches' breakfast for interviews, where all of these other guys literally sit down to eat breakfast and the media just lobs questions at you for a half hour. Yeah, he, I, I, he, just, I just take it as like, like Ron Swanson. You don't interrupt McDermott when he's eating bacon and eggs. No, absolutely not. He'll answer your questions when he's damn good and ready. Well, out of all this, you know, with all these other things going on, there was a headline that didn't get a whole lot of run, at least with the people on Twitter, with the local media. And it's something that I think could very likely play a large role in the team's future stadium and the shape of the future game day experience. And no, I'm not talking about throwing me out of the stadium. The Pagulas have hired lobbyists. Okay, They've gone to Albany and over the course of the last few weeks have been pushing the conversation with lawmakers down there regarding their desire for in-stadium sports betting. Now think about that, Chris. An active sports book and wagering station in the middle of New Airfield. Sounds cool to me. As we are all aware, the U.S. government recently repealed their ban on sports betting and gambling. And they've kind of left it up to states to make their own decision as to whether it should be allowed or not. Now, kind of like how Colorado, you know, <laughs> was the, you know, kind of the guinea pig for the rest of the country as far as the legalization of marijuana, states that are on the fence are letting some of the more revenue desperate states act like they're guinea pigs. New Jersey was the first state to formally open up sports gambling. You know, we're going to let people gamble online, we're going to open up sports books in our casinos, and more seem to be trending in that direction in the future. As of right now, New York State hasn't budged on the idea at all. Governor Cuomo has been very outspoken and gone on record that he, Chris, he hates the idea. Hates it. He went on record with WMAC Radio, is the name of the station, that in an appearance on their weekly show, said that he doesn't know that there's a real economic benefit to allowing sports betting, whether that's online or whether it's in person. He stated that, well, New Jersey has brought in around $14 million in tax revenues since they passed the laws that opened all of that up. The New York, New York State has a budget of about $170 billion, And that the level of return that they might get, I mean, quote, this is his quote, Chris. The level of return that they might see back would be, quote-unquote, similar to a rounding error in our state. 
essentially that's a cheap shot at New Jersey for being poor and also for essentially saying that he doesn't think that the amount of money generated by this would be worth it. So that doesn't sound like a guy who's (laughs) willing to cave very easily, does it? No, I'm all for gambling legally across every goddamn state. And why? What is it? Well, what is it for you that you you you? I mean, I'm not against you. I just want to know. It's just the same thing with like with uh, marijuana. Like if you legalize marijuana and then you taxed it, you can make a shit ton of money. People love weed. People love to gamble. Okay. Well. You have a point because it's estimated that there's already $10 billion being wagered illegally in New York State as of this year. And that the taxes on that could generate revenue of up to, you know, they're they're talking about up to $101 million annually. And yet the New York State government doesn't think it's a good idea. And there could be a chance that they might have a point, Chris. Last week, the state of Rhode Island, who was another one of these guinea pig states that jumped on the chance to think about it. What do New Jersey and Rhode Island have in common, Chris? They've got smaller population. They're both ocean states, first of all, which means they immediately smell like crabs and ass. I mean, one of them's too close to Philadelphia. One of them's too close to the New England Patriots. Both of those are teams that, I mean, I swear to God, if both of those states sank into the ocean like Atlantis, no one would care. (laughs) <laughs> but I digress. It's not my point. My point is, is that they're both states with small populations. You know, they don't have a whole lot of revenue-generating opportunities. So, I mean, there's obviously business in New Jersey. It's not like New Jersey is nothing. But they don't have the corporate presence that New York does. You know, they don't have the population that Massachusetts does. So, at this point, they're kind of grasping at straws for revenue, which explains why they got in so early. But whereas, you know, $14 million was what New Jersey reported in earnings, Rhode Island actually lost $900,000 on it instead of the projected $11.5 million. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to look into specifics as to how they lost it. It's Rhode Island. Anytime they lose anything, I win. Yeah, Rhode Island has not been relevant since uh, Lamar Odom went to college there. You can ask James Potter about Rhode Island. I took a trip there once for like three days. Oh, is that where your lady dumped you? I don't want to talk about it. All right. Don't want to talk about it. (laughs) So the Pagulas sent their representatives to Albany, and they're trying to change the minds and votes that those in charge may have. And they're there petitioning this alongside a group of stadiums. There's a coalition of stadiums, Yankee Stadium and Madison Square Garden. They're also sending lobbyists. They're getting in on this initiative. Because they want not only, I mean, not only should, you know, they they obviously are telling the state, look, here's how much money you could make. But they're not doing it out of the kindness of their own heart, Chris. There's money to be made here. There's local revenue at stake. First and foremost, I can only imagine what that would look like, Chris. Think about a, a stadium that has gambling in it. You think people are pissed off now about the way things are going on the field? What if not only are the Bills just getting absolutely dragged around the field on Monday Night Football, but you're also down $285 from Sunday that you were hoping to win back? How much, how, how much more alcohol-fueled rage do you think you're going to have? Yeah, for you, you would have a ton. <laughs> That's why I don't gamble on sports anymore. I mean, folks, it's... 
I can see where people are coming from in terms of, hey, this would be a great thing. Everyone should have it. You said it yourself, Chris. You think it should be legal simply because it's there. We should be able to do it. Everybody does it, even on a fantasy football level. We gamble. Everybody puts money in a pool. Everybody has a league that they gamble. I mean, I pay 100 bucks into with some buddies, and we do fantasy football. Even that, you can legalize that. I mean, there is some upshot. I mean, I'm talking about disgruntled fans, but when you really think about it, if they were to build a sports book, you know they'd probably build something of a lounge to go along with it. I mean, I doubt it would be something as cheap. They wouldn't build something as cheap as the OTB. So with that, you're talking about increased concession sales. It's you know beverage sales, food. I, you would be giving people a place to congregate on days when they wouldn't normally be at the stadium. Which is, again, another revenue builder that you didn't have before. I can just picture them having a sportsbook lounge at the stadium. And, like, based on your personality, the sportsbook and lounge would probably only have wicker furniture. <laughs> it better not. So you could it better not, or else so Hurricane Drew's going to yeah, blow through that so place. you could easily put your fist through a wicker <laughs> chair. <laughs> so... This all becomes more interesting, and the reason we're talking about it tonight is when you take that, that you know, this this knowledge that they're lobbying the, the state government to essentially make an about-face on a policy that stood for a long time in pursuit of new revenue, and then you take Terry Pagula's quotes from last week's ownership meetings. I mean, here's here's the quote from Vic Carucci's article over at the Buffalo News. Terry Pagula was quoted as saying this. When asked if, now I'm quoting from the article, when asked if he wanted a dome stadium, uh, Terry Pagula said no. Then he says, well, we'll see what the, you know, icon study says. It's all about what we things are, think our fans want and what they would prefer. In terms of what the NFL would prefer, Terry Pagula said, quote unquote, more or less, they want to, quote, see something done one way or the other. He added, we're one of the smaller markets. In any way we can increase our revenue, they're for it. Now think about that for a second. When you think back to when the Pagulas bought the team, it was made, there was no bones made about it in the press that one of the caveats, all right, I don't even know if you can call it a caveat, but one of the themes of the Pagulas buying this team was that a new stadium would come along with the purchase, that eventually there had to be a plan for a new stadium. Because new stadiums are revenue builders. I mean, you look at the modern stadiums that exist around the country. I mean, we talk to fans, of, we talk to people about it from the Fal- uh, Falcons fan base. Oh, yeah. Flat, we, uh, there's yeah, we, steakhouses and there's a strip mall inside the stadium to the point that it actually takes fans out of their seats when they should be watching the football game. Yeah, because we played them in their uh, inaugural season in the Mercedes-Benz Dome. And you can visibly see it watching it on TV that, you know, new quarter or after halftime, there's just weren't pe- people were not in their seats. That's because there's so many amenities outside of the field that you're not, you don't want to be in your seat. Why so, yeah, watch the game? So maybe it takes away from the, be, be, you know, quote-unquote game day experience, but it makes money. It makes money. That's it. It makes more money than we currently bring in with our stadium now. And so I guess when you look at it through that lens and you look at this, there's a couple takeaways I have. First and foremost, it ultimately sounds like the league is starting to soften its stance on this. 
And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you're talking about a sports league as big as the NFL that just saw, what, three franchises move in the last five years, Chris? Yep. St. Louis, San Diego, and coming soon, Oakland. Okay. So you've got multiple scorned cities out there who are pissed off about the way the NFL does business. That's first and foremost. You've got the fact that Oakland is actively suing the NFL for what they consider to be a breach of agreement in terms of how they're just packing up and leaving after taking all their public money. It's, it sounds like the league might be getting tired of all this relocation stuff. And it wouldn't shock me. I mean, no company wants all this negative press all of the time, year after year after year. So it makes sense that they may look around and read the tea leaves and say, hey, first of all, we may be running out of cities that we can extort money from. <laughs> Second of all, we're pissing off a lot of people. And not that we care, but we kind of have to care a little bit. So with that said, it, Pagula seems to have established that while a new stadium may no longer be an NFL mandate, he's... He's willing to get creative to find these new revenue sources that will appease the league and help him continue doing business here in Buffalo. And this may, Chris, ultimately be the opening salvo on what becomes a full-on campaign for state assistance. I mean, think about it. You go down there, now you've got your lobbyists down there. These people are getting to kind of poke around at Albany, figure out who knows what, who knows who, who you can leverage, who you can talk to, who... Terry should be talking to, who who should be meeting with in person. Ultimately, when the conversation gets had, I mean, the quotes from Kim Pagula, we've all heard them already. It's been rehashed in the media for over a week. They've talked about how any, with a renovate, even a renovation, not even a new stadium, but a renovation of our current stadium would probably run about a half billion dollars. And it would be one of the most, it would be one of the largest, most aggressive renovation campaigns that the Western New York area has seen in decades. So with that said, there's, it's clear that they don't feel like they should have to foot the bill alone. That's why they're starting to get people involved. That's why they're starting to knock on doors in Albany. This is, I think, a precursor to them inevitably getting everybody between the Buffalo government and the New York state government in to try to get everybody together and figure out who they need to be talking to when it comes time to ask, who's going to pay for that half billion dollar renovation? I mean, is that fair? That is fair. I mean, I'm a season ticket holder. You're a season ticket holder. You know, if I'm okay with public money because I go to the, I'll go to every game. Just you know, if you're going to put in that kind of renovation, just give us some more goddamn bathrooms. <laughs> well, Chris, we have the secret bathroom that no one seems to know about. Uh, people are starting to know about it. Ah, you bastards! Usually, we talk about it on the podcast. I don't know. I I I don't think that's it. <laughs> I don't think that people just figure it out where to go. Because usually when I go there, there's a long line. Either way, folks, there's going to be plenty of time this offseason where we're going to have far more nuanced conversation and a lot of discussion with people who are a lot smarter on this topic of new stadium construction and the politics behind it. We're going to have that conversation with people much, much smarter than we are. But the fact remains that things are getting more more, more interesting on the Buffalo Bills stadium front as the weeks go on. It's going to be interesting to see in a few months where we land on all this. And so with that, folks, we jump right into the, the meat and potatoes, the reason we're all here tonight. 
The 2019 Rockpile Report NFL Draft Preview featuring the running back position. Now, here on the show, we have a process as to how we stack our draft preview shows. We start with what we view as the least likely to be drafted, and then we work our way towards positions that are the most probable. And this usually works really well, especially when you consider that you get to watch the churn of free agency kind of shape where, te- where the team might be heading. You know what I mean? You get to see the way that their picks and their free agency acquisitions shape the direction they're going to lean in the draft. I mean, the fact that the Bills just signed Quentin Spain, that's a big deal. Because now they've already signed two guards with starting experiences. And they've got a center who is the highest paid center in the league. All of a sudden, you've got guys, not to mention a backup in Spencer Long. I think it's a total of five signees on the offensive line on the offensive line and it looks like four of them could be starters so the question is where and now you look at it and say okay well then where does that put us in terms of drafting in the interior of the offensive line well it affects that as you head to the draft because it's less of an issue so the team's less likely to draft another guard we just signed three of them okay so In that same vein, that's how we like to stagger our shows. So the most important to the upcoming draft are the closest to it, just so it's fresh in everybody's mind. And sometimes as you watch that happens, it forces you to dramatically reevaluate where you thought your team was going. So with just three weeks between us and the NFL draft, we were forced to elevate the importance of the running back position to our 2019 coverage. Now, Chris, this all happens because let's take a look at, first of all, the roster overview. Our current cap allocation for the running back position is $12.3 million, which is third in the NFL. Okay, The only two teams who have more than us, more cap dollars allocated already for the 2019 season, the Los Angeles Rams, who have Todd, Gurley. Todd Gurley's massive contract, and San Francisco, who literally has six running backs on the roster right now. That's not going to stand. So they're going to fall in the rankings, probably boosting us up to number two. When you talk about starters on the roster, I'd say one. Okay? The Bills have the league's oldest and at the same time most expensive running back rooms. I mean, it's crazy to me, Chris. (laughs) When we had Chris Ivory just a few weeks ago, I made the joke about how it's like that Morgan Freeman movie, Going in Style, where the three old guys are planning their last big heist before they have to retire to an old folks' home. Well, now they've gotten rid of Ivory, and it's become the bucket list. Now I just got to figure out whether it's LaShawn McCoy or whether it's uh, you know LaShawn Frank McCoy Gore. or Frank Gore. Who gets to be Jack Nicholson? I don't know. I don't know. But it's hard to believe that a GM who... I mean, I don't know if he's proved that he has an understanding of cap management, but he's at least illustrated shades of it. You know what I mean? With all the moves he made last year to get us into the cap position we are now going forward, I can't imagine a guy with that much savvy could possibly think that it's a good idea to head into a season with two ancient running backs unless there's another play here still to be made. Dude, we've done that the last three years. Mike Tolbert, Chris Ivory... Now Frank Gore, why aren't we? Why aren't we drafting a running back? I think of any position, you're finding a shit ton of value anywhere in any of the rounds. 
You go back to last year, Philip Lindsay, undrafted, killed it for the Broncos. Camara was a third round pick. Why aren't we putting Jay Ajayi? I mean, yeah, why aren't guys, we putting capital in those middle rounds where you could probably find good value for the running back? Well, and that's where this conversation that we're about to have becomes so much more important because when you look at our, our room right now, on paper you'd think you're okay. But when you really dig into it, you find out that we're right there on the tipping point as far as our running back room is concerned. You've got LaShawn McCoy, perennial star running back, fresh off the worst statistical season of his career. He's going to be 31 years old by week one this year. And he's a dynamic threat in the open field, but he's not a true one-cut running back. That's not his style. He doesn't get downhill in a hurry. He doesn't, you know, that's not, that's not how he runs. Frank Gore, on the other hand, is that kind of one cut him in a seal hole and hit it where I can. He's old as hell, but yes, he's still running around. I mean, he makes solid decisions, and he's only fumbled the ball, what, I think two fumbles per year on average over the last three seasons. And last year is a split starter. I don't know how the guy keeps doing it. He didn't score a single touchdown, Chris. So all this talk about him being brought in to be the short yardage and goal lineback. I don't know how much credence I give that. He had no touchdowns last season. But he posted a higher yards per carry at 4.6 than he has since 2012. So the guy still has some chops. I mean, it's not like the Miami offensive line was great last year. And he found a way to make hay behind it. So between him and LaShawn McCoy, you're already banking on two old NFL version of old running backs to try to carry the load for your team. And behind them, there's not much else. Marcus Murphy. Last season, I was wowed by Murphy and said that he had a starter's upside. And I was wrong. I'm willing to admit that. He's a decent back, but he's got he's subpar in a few critical areas. Speed at the line of scrimmage. He, he doesn't hit the line of scrimmage with authority and break into the open field the way you want a starting running back to do. He's indecisive. That leads to a lot of his problems. And he's one of the worst pass protectors I've seen in a long time at the running back position. I don't know if it's because he's just the way he's framed, his size, his weight. I don't know what it is, but he's terrible. He also doesn't have instincts for pass protection, which is even worse. Because sometimes he doesn't know who he's supposed to be blocking. You can't trust him, Chris, to even be a third down back at this point. And then the other two players on the roster behind him, Senores Perry and Keith Ford. Perry's a journeyman special teams player and nothing more. I mean, I saw all over Twitter, oh, well, we signed another running back. Maybe he has some hidden upside. He has eight carries in four NFL seasons. Well, it was on, I told you, I think it was last week, I might have mentioned it, that on Facebook, the Bills put out a, a post about his signing, and they put in the caption, Bill signed special teamer Sonorsi Perry, and then they had a, a graphic with it, and it was like, Signed running back. Well, even the social media team knows he's not going to be in the backfield, that he's a special teamer. And then you've got Keith Ford, undrafted free agent running back that is, he's a jack of all trades, but there's nothing he does well. We unfortunately had to watch him try to contribute in a lot of games last year. He's not, Chris, there's just nothing special about him in any way, shape, or form. He's a practice squad player, nothing more than that. Maybe someday he'll be what Senoris Perry is right now, which isn't much. So when it comes to draft philosophy, it's obvious here what the problem is. 
We've got a room full of guys who either haven't proved anything or are years removed from the last time they proved anything as term in terms of being a legitimate starting running back at the NFL level, a threat, you know, somebody who's viewed as a game breaker. Look at any of the rookie or sophomore quarterbacks who have made noise in the NFL over the last few years. You mentioned it before, Elvin Kamara. Yep. Yeah, third round, Saints. Jay Ajayi. He has a Super Bowl ring. I mean, there, <laughs> there are these running backs that are found throughout. Philip Lindsay. Yep, mentioned that. Pro Bowl. Pro Bowl talent, if he didn't get hurt in one of his final games. It, there are running backs out there to be had. And the thing is, we have reached a tipping point. If you ignore it for one more season, it might be too late. And then you look at what the overall impact on the offense is. For the Bills to maximize what Josh Allen is able to give us under center, this is absolutely something that you, the position you got to see some juice from. Think about the sophomore quarterbacks, Chris, who have made noise in the NFL in the last few years. Rookies and sophomores. You've got Goff, Wentz, Mayfield, Mahomes. They all had stud running back production behind them. That's what freed them up to learn, be more comfortable. If anything else, it made them, I'm not going to say it made them a better quarterback because they had a good running back. It's like they were protected by it. They obviously went out and made a lot of throws. But by having a dynamic running threat, you're able to keep a defense honest long enough that a good young quarterback can start to find his feet under him. Teams can't blitz the way they used to. Teams can't stack boxes the way that they the, the Bills have been accustomed to seeing. I mean, think about when Tyrod Taylor was our quarterback. The Bills saw more stacked boxes than any team in football because they knew LaShawn McCoy was the only threat we had. Now, if you're a young quarterback who's trying to find those intermediate routes, you're trying to, you're trying to learn to trust what your eyes are seeing, it makes it a lot easier when you know the game isn't literally hinging on every throw you make because you've got a guy behind you who can go and grind out first downs for you. I think that's paramount to Josh Allen's success. So the question is similar, this position, to the one at the wide receiver position. But it's different in the sense that, unlike wide receivers, we have two players at this position who have a track record of reliable production, despite their age. Okay, We don't have anyone at the wide receiver group who has that. So I can see why some fans would say wide receiver trumps running back. But even then, it's the opportunity, Chris. Do you would you rather be on the train or chasing it out of the station when you realize, oh shit, now our running backs are too old to be effective? We've missed the bus. And now we're running behind it trying to figure out where we want to be on offense. Instead of right now, you have an opportunity to address it here and now. Okay. Teams without elite production from the running back group are almost always forced to reach to try to fix the problem. And that's why I'm looking at it now. You have LaShawn McCoy. You have Frank Gore. Both of them in their own right are talented players nearing the end of their career. If it's not this year, it's going to be next year or the next year. Wouldn't you rather be ahead of the sticks, Chris? I'd rather have a rookie in there right now to learn from McCoy and Gore. On the field. Strictly on the field. The, but, but he, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You got it. I don't want him learning off the field stuff from... McCoy, and if you hang around Gore off the field, 
I mean, the dude's not smart. What, he got a six on the Wonderlick? Jesus. <laughs> okay, okay. But there's something to that, Chris, and that's a very valid point because when you think about it, you're talking about guys, two veteran leaders at the running back position who have not only performed at elite levels over the course of their entire careers, but have both managed to remain relatively healthy into their 30s. They're still playing in the NFL at 31 years old, Chris. That, that in and of itself is an amazing feat. So imagine what a young kid thrown into that room right now could learn between the film room, the weight room, off the field maintenance. You know, hey, what do you do in your free time? How do you stretch? How do you, how do you recover from games that keeps you healthy, that keeps you ready to do this week in and week out? Given all of this, this is absolutely a position that the, the team needs to be looking at. They have to backfill this this group, and they have to do it soon. I, Chris, I can't see them pushing this off for another year. I just I, can't. I can't either. I can see them taking. Well, I can see them taking a running back this year and a running back next year. Well, because what you have right now, like I said, is the opportunity to throw a young guy in there who doesn't have to be relied on. He doesn't have to be relied on to carry the team. Instead, he can learn how to play NFL football, and in a year when you need him, you can get you can let LaShawn McCoy go. You can let Frank Gore walk away. Frank Gore He's should, will probably deal. retire after this last season. Or during the year. <laughs> oh, God. Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Well, yeah, we got McCoy. You also have McCoy's contract. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know the how much time he's got left, his dead cap hit. But, I mean, I know he's making a, a ton of money. But that's something to look at is if you get a running back in here this year, if you draft another running back next year, does that give you enough to be able to cut McCoy next year? And, and, and Chris, I mean, to your point, it gives you flexibility, which is exactly what I think is the most important part of this, is flexibility for the future. Bar none, one of the most important facets of the draft is setting yourself up for future success. So with that, I feel like it's a no-brainer. Luckily, we have an extremely experienced analyst who's going to join us and help us parse through all of this to decide whether or not the value is truly there. And so guys, without any further ado, I'm going to bring in the man of the hour. The reason we're all here tonight, Mr. Matt Waldman. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. It's a nice, uh, nice relaxing day, which is something I haven't had for quite a while. So then I get to kind of hang out at night with you guys and get a chance to talk a little ball. So it's a nice little balance that I haven't had in a while. Folks, for those of you who are uh, familiar with the show, our hardcore listeners, you all know who Matt Waldman is. For any of you out there who know draft, you know who Matt Waldman is. But if there's still someone out there who doesn't know, Matt Waldman runs the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. It's, it's an incredible resource when you're talking about offensive skill players in the upcoming draft. He just released on Monday the 2019 edition of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. It's an incredibly comprehensive draft guide. It covers all of the offensive skill positions in depth. And as a caveat for all the subscribers, it gives you additional coverage throughout the season, which I think is unique from a lot of other scouting publications out there. So, Matt, why don't you talk a little bit about Monday's release of your new scouting guide and what all went into it this year? Sure. Um, 
The RSP is a bookmark PDF format. And so what I do is I put out, a like you said, a pre-draft and a post-draft. Post-draft comes out a week after the NFL draft, and it's more fantasy-oriented for the immediate you know, the immediacy of where they fit within their schemes now that they've been added to a team, depth chart types of analysis, and then I take a, I make a, a cheat sheet that a lot of people value because what I do is I take my rankings of the player, I compare it to the current average draft position of, of those players, and I help you identify sweet spots for where you can get the most value out of the player. So maybe my pre-draft ranking in the RSP pre-draft is – I had Nick Chubb number one, just over Saquon Barkley. You know, now I wasn't telling people that in in the post draft that you need to draft Nick Chubb number one. What I would do is say, listen, you're going to draft Saquon Barkley if you get the 101, but you can get Nick Chubb later at this value, and you're going to end up getting two backs at uh, at a terrific price who are going to be awesome for your team if you can get those two um, at that particular level, and that that's what. The RSP post drafts available for you to do, and then you also get subscription to my newsletter, which gives you updates. Like I do rankings for, I show the past three years worth of my rankings in every RSP, um, so you can see kind of where I stood on the rookie classes previous and where they look at how they look compared to the the previous two, and I, then I give updated rankings based on those three years, a couple times during the year, like once during August, once during November, um, and also give you kind of sneak a peek at the future classes. And when you look at the pre-draft, what makes the pre-draft valuable is a lot of fantasy players often say to me when they first get the book, they're like, I really prefer the post-draft because it gives me this cheat sheets and kind of the down and dirty. And why don't you just sell that separately? And basically uh, what I tell them is like, well, that's never going to happen because um, I know that I understand why you're asking that. But the, the pre-draft information actually informs the post-draft stuff a lot. And what you're going to find is three to four years from now when the talking heads at, you know, big media are talking about some player who's emerged from the waiver wire and added to another team and they go, we didn't know anything about him. We didn't think he could play. Who's this guy? No one's talking about that guy. Well, you have a very complete write-up of those players and they're being ranked in ways that are regardless of where their landing spot was. So you can see someone and go, no one's talking about Peyton Barber, and yeah, he's not a world beater of a back, but you know what? He held off Ronald Jones, and he certainly and he certainly played well enough to climb his way up a depth chart um, and make other players like Sims and and Martin expendable. So suddenly you look at him and go, you know what? We have a write up of this guy and understand what he's about and what kind of value you can give to my team, and that's helpful, you know. And I think that that's the kind of thing that the RSP provides in addition to. You know, you get all the different rankings, you get all the different write-ups. I take you through my process. You know, in the RSP, I'll say this: I've talked to uh, a few recruiting coordinators that I know in Division One football, and they and they mention you know about two to three draft guides that are from independent scouts. And obviously, I only do four positions, but I've been told that I that my my publications viewed a fair bit, and one of the more viewed publications by scouts. Um, when it comes to independent material. So it's not just a fantasy-oriented product. It really takes you through a, a process for scouting that's very well-defined and rooted in you know, um, my experience in operations management and, and really put it out there in a way where you can learn about how to scout the game using my process. 
and I continue to grow and develop and improve upon that process every year. This year, with quarterbacks, for instance, I'm doing, I'm using next-gen statistical analysis that has that they've done research with with you know tens of thousands of throws, and I'm using that to use thresholds for accuracy at various points of the field, and I'm charting every quarterback that I watch, every game that I watch, and giving you basically a summation of their charting and linking that to various forms of accuracy that inform my grades for those players. See, folks, there's a wealth of knowledge to be gleaned here from the rookie scouting portfolio. Quarterback, wide receiver, running back. It's incredible what you can learn in this. I mean, just from my own experience, Chris's own experience, in our in our fantasy experiences, <laughs> I mean, I, his, his things are bigger than this, obviously. But just from our conversation last year, hearing Matt tell us about how much he thought of Nick Chubb, I landed him in the 10th round of a keeper league. Eighth round, non-keeper. I finished, wow. in the, I finished second place, and Chris won the Super Bowl in his fantasy league. Simply because we had the conversation with Matt, and he sold us on this idea of Nick Chubb, and it came to fruition because he scouts the game so well. And that's why we had to bring him back here for a conversation about this year's running back class. Because really, now Matt, I just got done telling our listeners about how the Bills have a real opportunity here when you look at the 2019 class. Philosophically, you do not want to be the football team that has two 31-year-old running backs and nothing behind them in the pipeline. That said, these two 31-year-old running backs that they have have proven that they can be productive. So you have an immediate value from them, and this is the perfect opportunity to inject some talent even if it's talent to be groomed for the future into that running back room. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, I would absolutely agree with that because, you know, first of all, both those backs that you have now in Buffalo are future Hall of Fame players. I mean, LaShawn McCoy is a fantastic football player who still can get it done um, in terms of his change of direction and his, and his acceleration is still good enough, and he's a very smart runner. And Frank Gore, listen... Frank Gore, before his two knee injuries at the University of Miami, Larry Coker was the coach who recruited him. Larry Coker was the former running back coach at Oklahoma State when they had Barry Sanders and Thurman Thomas. And he said before Frank Gore, when he recruited Frank Gore, he told the local, or not local media, told national media that Frank Gore was the best high school prospect he ever saw at the position. Wow. And he and scouted, and I watched Frank Gore before he went down because I went to the University of Miami, um, and I saw I, I I would watch a fair bit of Miami football. He was on the level of Ezekiel Elliott in the way we think of Ezekiel Elliott now. He had that kind of all around ability with top end acceleration and bend speed. And when you think of what he did on two knees, that you know <laughs> that he's still playing and held off the likes of Kenyon Drake, who's an uber athlete. Um, he's a back that. I've been told by people in the NFL that running back coaches routinely use his tape as a teaching tool to young stud athletes and say, you need to study this guy to learn how to run between the tackles because he's the master craftsman in this league who's still doing it. Well, we just got done telling everybody it would behoove a young running back to have these two Hall of Famers to learn from, both in the film room, in the weight room, off-field, you know, conditioning type stuff. So with that said, 
we look at the running back class in 2019. Now, in your in your podcast regarding your review of the running back class, you discussed the work you put in reviewing it, and you called it the hardest position group you've ever had to review since you started doing this in 2006. <laughs> I mean, you didn't start recording that show until 2.45 in the morning. That's <laughs> <laughs> so so that's a bold statement considering how much work you put into these reviews. Can you speak a little bit to exactly what made this so much more difficult than previous classes? Absolutely, because I, you know, like I like you said, you know, I study quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. And while I've had my hits and misses on a variety of players at different positions throughout the years, I take a lot of pride in that I feel like running back is one of my wheelhouses. Um, you know, back in the day, you know, the first time I did this, I remember having a high ranking for a player by the name of Mike Bell, who was a undrafted free agent who ended up starting for the Denver Broncos that year. And I remember the first year I did, I thought, well, you know, it's my first time I've ever done this, this process yielded this result. I must be way off. And then he ended up, you know, starting as a rookie as an, as an undrafted free agent. And that, and that ranged to, you know, High grades for Marshawn Lynch, low grades for players like Bishop Sankey and Andre Williams, and you know, kind of identifying highs and lows with players who were you know underrated and overrated. And so this year, to put that in perspective, this year was so difficult because the running back position has a wide range of physical, acceptable physical dimensions. You can be five seven and one seventy five and be a successful scat back. You can be six three and two one, you know six three and two fifty five, and be a successful running back in the league as well. And those ranges cover you know cornerback, safety, wide receiver, and linebacker. Um, excuse me, corner safety, linebacker, and defensive end in terms of prototypes for size. So when you have those wide ranges of sizes, it also means you have a wide range of physical abilities in terms of what really are the prototypes from the from the combine metrics mm-hmm. you know what's really acceptable speed for a bigger guy versus a little guy what's acceptable quickness change of direction skill they're all different it's not one size fits all but mm-hmm. we see it in you know in just larger draft larger draft media you often see it just kind of applied in a very broad brush and the running back position has a lot of different archetypes in terms of the physical size and then what types of ways they run, what their so, gates like, how, so was they, this year's, how they move and change direction. So was this so, year's that much different from previous years? I, I think so. I think this year is you're seeing wider extremes of mm-hmm. players who are getting a lot of love and you have to make sure that is it warranted or not. You look at guys like Devin Singletary and Travion Williams, who people are talking about as you know, some of the, you know, guys who might get picked second, you know, second day in the draft. And some of these guys you look at and you go, well, they're not only small, they're slow. They don't change direction as quickly. And all they have is vision. And you got to <laughs> wonder, do, are there compensating factors for things that they don't have? Because that's what makes good backs. You know, if not everyone's going to be a LaShawn McCoy. For Frank Gore, he doesn't have LaShawn McCoy's, you know, explosive burst and change of direction quickness to, to make those crazy change of directions to bounce outside that he did this prime and he didn't have the breakaway speed but what he had was incredible vision and, and balance and really good footwork 
to control what he did. So that's those are compensating factors for not having what maybe McCoy has, you know. Or you could look at it the other way and say McCoy is powerful enough, but he's not as powerful as, and balanced as Frank Gore. So what does oh, he yeah. have that compensates? Great no. change of direction, quickness, and the creativity to make really dynamic cuts. And that's so a really good bat- that's a really good Go point. No, I was just saying it's a really good point that you bring up because. It does t- every running back who's successful at a high level has a style, and they are masters at the style that they have to run using their frame, using their weight. I mean, Frank Gore is successful because of his body type and the way he runs, but he couldn't survive being asked to be the type of running back that LaShawn McCoy is. If you put him in those okay. types of positions, he would absolutely fail. He would right. fail across the board. Yeah. So it's so. It sounds an awful lot like team by teams, situation by situation, every running back could be perceived at a different value this year. That's exactly right. And then on top of that, there are players who are considered really good who you look at and go, I don't see how the compensating factor is there enough. Like a guy like Devin Singletary gets a lot of love, but because he's short, light, slow, not quick, doesn't have great acceleration, then the one thing that he has to have is great vision. And he does have great vision for the college game, and it sets up how he paces runs. It sets up how he presses the, um, presses the creases so that he gets lost between them in a way where the defenders are a step slow to find him, and that adds a step of quickness and acceleration to his benefit. But will that happen in the NFL? Will his vision really compensate enough for him to be that guy. And to me, there's not enough proof to that. So there's a lot of guys who are kind of like that. And then on the opposite, there's a guy like LJ Scott, who is powerful, really great footwork, um, catches the ball really well. But is he quick enough and have enough burst to, to do that and be, you know, I look at him and go, hmm, he could be a slower version of Le'Veon Bell and be, and be successful. You know, or or Matt Forte, you know, and be successful. Mm-hmm. Or he could just be a guy that he, he's, he's you just, see flashes, but just not quite good enough. Just another there guy. There are a lot of guys like that. Well, and that's the problem with trying to grade this position, which is why he, seeing your work and seeing you know, listening to your podcast and following your work online, it's really kind of, I, I love this type of stuff. And I love talking to you about it because it, it's clear you take a lot of pride in your scouting of this position. Now, when we talk about this class as a whole, first and foremost, top of the class, the very first question I have is that in years past, I I think NFL fans have gotten accustomed to this idea that there's always this high-level elite running back available in the first round. You've got Gurley, you've got Zeke, Fournette, Barkley. You have these guys every year for the last five years, and then you come into a draft like this one where... I, I don't know. I don't know that there's a top 20 pick at running back. I mean, I get it that this draft is heavy on the defensive and offensive lines. There's you know some cornerbacks that are being talked about. There's a couple freak wide receivers that are being talked about. But I haven't seen running back being as highly touted this season. I mean, what, is this the first draft in the last handful of years or half a decade without a clear quote unquote bell cow back? Um, yes and no. And I think the, the answer of the reason why you would answer yes is because there's a glut of talent at the position. I know we hear a lot about running backs don't matter. 
And one of the things that I would add to this is that running backs do matter. They just matter less because of the rule changes. Um, but when you look at a guy like Ezekiel Elliott, he commands certain coverages that no defense would ever abandon um, if, with Elliott on the field. Like, they, they can't cheat with their coverages with Elliott on the field. And there are other lots of running backs where they can kind of do different things um, to play the pass a little bit more. Um, so, and on top of that, with because of this whole running backs don't matter thing that you, you're hearing, is that people tend to take that an extra step that's too far, which they think that running backs are in are basically unskilled labor who basically make up stuff as they go along, and they and they don't have any skills. They're just like athletes, and that couldn't be more incorrect in my opinion, because what's happened really is that as the as the Rules have changed. The demands on running backs have, have gone up at a very fast rate in terms of pass protection, the complexity of pass protection, the complexity of receiving, the complexity of different schemes that you would run from, and the wider range of playbooks um, type of plays that you have to run as a runner. And so as a result of that, these runners are actually coming into the league more skilled than what you'd see on average 10, 15 years ago, if you ask me. A guy like... Um, Josh, you know, a guy like Howard, you know, Jordan Howard, I think he would have been easily a franchise back 15 years ago just because of the fact that he could run, even though he wasn't a great receiver. Now he now got traded. What did he get traded for? A sixth round draft pick a year exactly. from now? And people think of him as just a guy who's a pretty good back between the tackles. When, you know, in fact, the matter is, is that. Nowadays, you have to be not only a runner, you have to have one other really top-end skill. You have to be either a really good receiver or a really good blocker or all three. And you, or you, can, you have to be a runner who can run all the different types of schemes. We just um, got done telling our listeners, one of the, one of the things that stinks about our, our current situation is that you've got these two guys in uh, McCoy and Gore. But then outside of them, you've got a guy named Marcus Murphy, who I was really high on, really high on last offseason. I thought he was going to be something. And then what I found out is that not only does he not have anything special about him, but he's one of the worst pass protectors at running back I've ever watched. He yeah. almost got our quarterback killed on more than a handful of occasions because he just doesn't have a feel for pass protection. So to yeah. your point, a running back like him has no, almost no place in the NFL yeah. at this point. And, and so what happens is, you know, when you look at this, they're, they're seen as like what's happened is these guys have grown and become very talented. But there's such a glut of talent over the past several years, as you alluded to in the question, that there aren't a lot of open spots for teams for these running backs right now. But there's a guy, you know, then the way I'd say that I'd answer that question being no is that we overrate speed. We always overrate the 40 time with running backs. To me, it's about the 20 shuttle, three cone drill, the vertical, the broad jump, um, you know, the explosiveness and leg strength to change direction and accelerate. The, the, the 4 6, if you run a 4 6 40 or a 4 6 5 40, basically what's that, what that's saying is that when you get past 40 yards, someone's going to catch you. But if you're getting to 40 yards, if you're getting to 35, 40 yards on a regular basis, you're doing something right. You're doing a whole lot right. You know? well, so, and that's, that's a great point because, you know, that's lost on a lot of people. You know, to, I, I think the combine's the worst. I think the combine might be one of the worst events for the average fan because it twists your mind into buying into statistics that don't matter. You're buying yeah, into mean, things that don't yeah. matter, and you're ignoring some of the things that should. 
Yeah, and it, and the emphasis is placed on the on the forty because it's it because it's become a vicious cycle. The the fans like how are always fascinated by the primal how fast you can run over a distance. Then you have companies that are awarding you know big bounties basically for the winner of of that forty time. The networks who are getting sponsored by these companies are then going to have to play it up, even if the analysts don't want to. You know, they'll never <laughs> tell you that. Um, because they could spend more time on the things that actually matter. Even like the ten, even that ten yard split kind of makes me laugh because it's like, that's fine. You can talk about how good the ten yard split is, but I'm more impressed again with change your direction speed and acceleration where you're changing direction at least a couple of times with it because that's more realistic of how you're setting up creases as a runner. And so when I look at that, a guy like Joshua Jacobs to me is a, clearly a franchise back. He may be oh. on the lower end of that scale, but oh. he's a gut. And that's one of my questions for you. Oh, you just said his name, and it pains me inside. Okay, now I'm, a, I'm an Alabama fan. I watch Alabama football week in, week out. I watched the guy's entire, entire career, which was relatively short for an Alabama running back. Now, my question for you, last season, you talked up Nick Chubb, and he was the, he was the goods. You know what I mean? He, you sold us a bill of goods, and he was it. He was the, he was a stud, especially for where he was taken in the draft. When you look at the Ronald Joneses from the second round, you look at who you know the, the other people who were taken around him. With that said, I think back to last year's draft, and I wonder: Is he this year's Rashad Penny? And when I say that, this is what I mean: His rise up the draft board pre. Going into the collegiate season last year, Rashad Penny was probably 5th, 6th, 7th on most people's future draft rankings. He wasn't very highly thought of because he hadn't seen a lot of work. Josh Jacobs went on to have a prolific season. Every time I turned around, I'd, I'd, I'd be thinking in my head, okay, you know, they, they went out and got this uh, Najee Harris. They went out and got him for a reason. He was a top recruit for Alabama at running back. And yet, whenever they'd get near the red zone, or whenever something mattered, they would put in Josh Jacobs. I'm like, who is this Jacobs kid? Why is he touching the rock so much? He put on a hell of a show. And then he had a good combine. And all of a sudden, he goes from being, ah, well, he's the seventh or eighth or ninth. Now he's the number one running back. Do you firmly believe that he's a franchise back? Or is he the guy who's just had so much recent flash that, you know, because because of Rashad Penny, the Patriots were allowed to draft Sony Michelle. I mean, I'm just saying. I feel like some of these guys get overdrafted based on one year of production. Do you think the situations are similar, or are they drastically different? They're drastically different. Maybe on the surface they're similar based on the media narrative, but to be frank, I don't pay attention to that stuff. I just i I grade these players throughout the year. I have the grades that I have on them. And then I find out they're popular or not, you know, and it, 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 then that's the thing with they couldn't be more different players either because Rashad Penny is extremely fast. He's he only runs gap very well, even though he ran some inside and outside zone at Seattle. He, some of his biggest plays were basically plays that he didn't run correctly and he was able to be <laughs> faster than everybody else. Some some of his highlight plays were mistakes actually was um, conceptually and he got away with it but the reason that he didn't start was because you couldn't count on him you didn't know he was a box of chocolates you didn't know what you were going to get from 
next with him at his first year. He's going to learn how to do that. Joshua Jacobs, when you watch his game, he's extremely disciplined. He's very efficient. He's powerful. He's balanced. He, you know, the, the backs he reminds me of, well, the first guy, you know, I think of on the low end, on the very low end, he would be, if things were really disappointing, he'd be like Spencer Ware out of, of Kansas City, a really hard, balanced, physical runner who has good burst but not extremely fast but can do everything for you. On the high end of that spectrum, you could say he's like what Ray Rice was in his prime, who was definitely a feature back. Wow, that's high praise. Fast. Yeah, he wasn't fast, but he was quick, and he could carry the load, and he was reliable, and he could catch the football. And if you needed 10 yards or you needed 15, he was going to find 11 or 16 for you on a play. Um, and then the other guy that he reminds me of in a sense, and it's not so much from a direct comparison, but just from a maturity standpoint, in terms of how he plays on the field, how he reads creases, the decision-making, and the fact that he doesn't need long speed to have a career, that, that means to me that as, as he continues his career, he will probably age better than some backs who have to lean on that speed. Well, he happens to be playing for the Buffalo Bills right now, which is who we've talked about, Frank Gore. I could see him having that kind of career where we look at him and go, he had a good four to six, maybe five to seven, you know, top end, top ten kind of seasons for you. And then he had this long kind of plateau of age where, you know, fantasy players are really ticked off that he's still around and <laughs> their guys carries. And while, you know, some of us who like like guys like Frank Gore kind of smiling and going, whatever, you know, it's fun to see the old man work. And I think that Joshua Jacobs, if he can stay healthy, has the kind of game where speed won't matter so much, he can he can end up being a long term rare long term player in the league. So then that makes him sound like an absolute lock to be a first round draft pick, and I've seen a lot of that around. Based on that, is there anybody else that you see in your mind sneaking into that first round consideration, or is Jacobs it? I mean, I think that there's if people fall in love. Well, yeah, people fall in love, and you can't control what GMs do. I mean, L. Davis. L. Davis is the man who famously took Darius Hayward Bay in the top ten. So anything can happen. The short answer is probably not because a lot of these these GMs and owners, and especially the owners who dictate a lot more than we realize, especially if they're – because they spend a lot of time watching these combines, and they're they're basically whores for speed. Um, You know, I would say – that they will probably not like David Montgomery because he doesn't run a fast 40 time. But David Montgomery's not far away in terms of his skill set. And the, the quick answer is that David Montgomery does a lot of the things that Joshua Jacobs does. The difference is, is that Jacobs is a little better and wiser with his decision-making. He's more economic with his movement, whereas Montgomery's a guy who can give you a little bit more boom-bust in terms of creativity. When things aren't quite open he may do a little bit more to create and do it in a more dynamic fashion where it may risk him with some losses on some carries but also get him bigger gains than what you might find with Jacobs on occasion Um, so both of those guys are very well-rounded backs who just happen to lack long speed see and that's and I guess that's the thing is you get past the first round of the draft that actually makes me feel better as a Bills fan because in my mind there is no way in hell this team is drafting a first round running back If they do, 
it'll be a borderline riot here. <laughs> it'll be fire and brimstone. Peter Venkman from Ghostbusters. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Right. With right, that right. said, I mean, you look at the overall strength of the class, it sounds like there's many more bodies to be had there in the middle rounds. Now, we've already established that there are very different types of running backs throughout every class, and especially in this one, which made them hard to kind of try to grade. Every year, though, they're starting running backs harvested outside of the top two rounds of the draft. At the same time, there's the Ronald Joneses of the world, who just for whatever reason don't figure it out. You're a high second-round draft pick based on your speed, based on your agility, and then you never see the field. You actually don't get snaps for an entire season. So that's when you look at it, it is kind of a crapshoot. And I think, as Chris pointed out, you alluded to it at one point as a minefield. I did. And I think that it's, um, it's a minefield because you have guys, again, who have, they have specific fits or certain limitations. And so, you know, again, I think Jacobs and Montgomery are fairly safe, but then you have backs who have great speed, but do they re- are they limited in terms of the type of scheme they can run? You have some guys who seem to have an all-around game, but athletically they may not be able to do enough to ride the ride. Then you've got somebody who I think if I were the Bills, I would take, and we can bring him up later if you want, but I think he could easily be the best back in this class, but you might have to wait a year, maybe two, to see if he's healthy enough to uh, to play. But he'd be in a perfect situation to sit behind Gore and LaShawn McCoy <laughs> and kind of rehab and learn, and that'd be you know Oklahoma's Rodney Anderson. Ooh, Rodney Anderson. Well, see, and I guess that's my question. That's one of the things I have right here is every year there's guys, it's hard to pin down their value. Things are kind of fluid. You know what I mean? Rounds three through six, it's a dice roll because you don't know what teams are looking for at that point. I feel like, any, first of all, anybody who does a mock draft, first and foremost, they're almost always wrong. Almost always wrong to a point that you know, Bleeding Green Nation's Michael Kist, his, uh, they do every year, it's almost like golf. They take everybody's final mock draft from Sports Illustrated to ESPN, and they rank them like it's golf. And wherever that guy gets picked, you can assess the score. <laughs> whoever scores the highest, and obviously they go to the lowest score. And Doug Farrar from Sports Illustrated has never gotten better than 400. Right. Never gotten better than 400 on 31, 31 or 32 picks. It's incredible to me that that's a thing, that that's a, that, that happens. So mock drafts are stupid. But once you get past the first round, every mock draft goes out the window anyway because you have no idea what these teams value beyond that first round, beyond immediate need. So through rounds three through six, in that middle group, I've heard a lot of names thrown around by Bills fans about, hey, these are mid, mid-level prospects that we think have the upside to sit behind guys like Gore, guys like LaShawn McCoy, and be groomed into potential starters. I'm interested to hear more about this Rodney Anderson. I want to know more about this. What do you... Tell me the goods on this guy. Yeah, well, first of all, Rodney Anderson, You, when you look at him, he's 6 feet 224. He's, he's your classic big back who can, once he gets into the second level, he can separate and hold off the 
defensive backs. I think he'd probably be in the four five range, low four five range, as a in terms of speed. Um, if he broke four five and got under that, it would be, I'd say, a mild surprise, but not a major one. So he's got good speed. He's a tackle breaker. You know, good balance. He really stands out as a receiver. This is a guy that you could send up against safeties and have him run seam routes with back shoulder components to it and wow. win the ball. Um, he's done that repeatedly at Oklahoma. He's someone who he reminds me, I think, of when you, th- you know, I've had some people say that he reminds them of Adrian Peterson. I wouldn't go that far, but he has a common component that Adrian Peterson or even a guy like Ryan Matthews had at the beginning of his career, which is that when you get to the second level, once you break those, um, the, the, the line, he can plant his foot in the ground and completely alter the axis of pursuit that defenders are, are trying to take on him. And they're, you know, they suddenly have to change direction, and he's in the open field because of that. He can, at top speed, put jukes on a defensive back and make him look silly, like basically make his knees jelly. Um, so the issue with him is he has torn ACL. He broke his neck like um, a couple of years ago. Um, so he's had a neck injury. He's had an AC, he's, Now he has an ACL injury. People worried about the, the injury issues with him, but I think that you know, more than anything, he's been able to take a pounding in the league and, and play well. I just think that some of these injuries were, you know, the, the ACL is not as bad as it used to be in terms of an injury. But you can get a guy who right now I think has the grade in my book of a top five running back in this class, and that's accounting for his injury, you know, baking that in. Um, if he's healthy and, and you look at it from that standpoint – you're probably looking at a guy who's probably closer to one of the top three players, and you give him a year where he can be, you know, he's got to get better as a blocker. That's his big thing. But the fact that you have, you know, a quarterback who runs as much as Josh Allen can and escape, you, you know, you'd like to shore up that, you know, that pass protection. But I think Anderson can get better at, at that area, but he's also someone that can offer a lot of different components for you and you have the luxury of getting him a little later because you won't need him right now. And you can take that gamble in the same way that maybe, you know, back in the day you guys took a gamble on Willis McGahee and that paid off early on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everyone remembers McGahee and that gruesome knee injury. But then he came back and he was a stud for years. And then when he went to the Ravens, he came back to Buffalo and we beat him. And it was a great game. And I ended up having to throw a hot dog at a woman because she wouldn't stop cussing at a guy and his kid. It was a whole thing. <laughs> but, but, but so it, you think of throwing hot dogs when you think of Willis McGee. Every time I think of him, I think of me taking what was left of my foot long and just – it was out of my hand before I really actually knew I was throwing it. And then I didn't know how to get it back. It was a whole thing. But anyway, so Rodney Anderson, again, just – when you're talking about specific scheme fits, it sounds like Rodney Anderson fits not only our scheme but our situation. Now, when you look at the Bills, the Bills is a team. The offense that we operate under when it comes to our rushing attack, I don't care what anybody out there is going to tell you. If you're listening to this podcast right now, nobody knows. It's a mystery because last year we, f- we fielded one of the cheapest and most underwhelming offensive lines in the entire league. Now, you see the investments that have already been made along the line. We signed the highest-paid center in the NFL on an 
annual average value. We have, what, two new guards plus a guard-slash-center combo. We signed a total of five new people on the offensive line to help. Right. And, mo- and most of those are on the interior of the offensive line. Now, you've got a center who now has the mobility to pull, something that was missing from last season's offense, and something that McCoy had thrived under in the past. You've got an offensive coordinator that likes to run a lot of 11 personnel, three wide receivers, one tight end, and one running back. Now, those not only create space behind the linebacker, it it allows you to employ a lot of play action, it opens up things for your running game. It, It keeps the defense honest by default. And then, because of Josh Allen, you just hit the nail on the head, with a quarterback who, run, who is such a threat to run, he's already established that coming into 2019, defensive coordinators are going to have to spy the quarterback. Because the games we won, a lot of them were on the legs of Josh Allen. This is to the benefit to our running backs. Because our running backs now, they know there's a guy somewhere in the linebacker core that's not watching them. His only job is to spy the quarterback and make sure that it's not an RPO, that he's not going to pull that ball out and run it himself. So when I'm looking at this, I guess what I'm trying to think is in rounds three through five, that's essentially where I see us getting getting a running back from, somewhere in that span. Who do you like in that span, given given our our current situation? Well, I think you're going to want a back who can run gap or zone well. So that means you want... And also, if you're going to use play action, you're probably going to want to run stretch play. So you want a back who's quick enough to get to the outside and really press that that tackle. You know, And also, if you're going to run gap, who hits a, a gap crease pretty hard and has enough burst to do that. So while I there's a back I really like by the name of Alexander Madison out of Boise State, and while he showed some speed and he has excellent quickness, he would be the back that I think would be the best overall because I think he's, I think he's smart, I think he's well-balanced, he's a really, really skilled player. Um, but he may be able to, it's going to be interesting because I'm starting to think that he may creep up a little bit and he's going to be, he's going to be a player that may rise kind of quietly behind the scenes. So outside of him, there's some backs I've actually compared favorably to Bill's backs of the past. So... Um, one of them who comes to mind right away is out of North Dakota State by the name of Bruce Anderson, who is an excellent receiver downfield as well as his route running. I mean, this is a guy who is a mismatch for linebackers underneath, um, and he can beat safeties deep. Um, He is a very reliable ball carrier. He can block reasonably well at this page. He's about 5'11", 210. In style... He reminds me of Thurman Thomas. And, really? Uh, so when you and that's the that's the guy I put as a comparison as far as just stylistically his play. You could at the Senior Bowl he got hurt after the the first or the early second day of practice, and he pulled up with a little bit of a, a hamstring. So for, as a precaution, he sat out the rest of the week. But he was dominating um, defenders in one on one drills in terms of they couldn't cover him. Nobody could lay a hand on him in terms of one-on-one drills as a, as a pass catcher, um, and I was impressed with him as a runner. So that's one guy that I think could do it all for, for the Bills. Another guy is Elijah Holyfield, who is going to drop somewhat because he's slow. You know, he's, he runs a 4.78, 40, but he's quick enough to get the edge. So he's, 
He's a guy that runs with a lot of power, a lot of force. He has good balance. He can catch the ball. Um, he has good movement. He's just not fast. So he reminds me a little bit of, you know, that bowling ball with knives, you know, Travis Henry <laughs> in that sense. So you have two guys right there who remind me of Bills who I think could give you, you know, Anderson could give you more of that versatile element where you could split him outside, put him, and, and really get some good work out of him, but he could still run between the tackles. Holyfield's more of a banger who, who has just enough burst to get the job done, but I wonder if any team will want to make him a lead back. I, I see him as a guy that they'll go, yeah, he had a great year for us. We were so glad we have him. Let's draft somebody else or get a free agent who we're going to compete with him so that we don't have to pay him big money. You know, <laughs> well, no, and that's one of the things that scares the hell out of teams when it comes to running backs. And it's funny that you brought up Elijah Holyfield because he's been a hot topic of conversation around here. Now, Dean Kindig, a guy that we go to whenever we have questions about visits or what, what, what do you, he tracks the Bills visits, where the Bills scouts are essentially where do the Bills scouts go? Who have they talked to? Who have they seen? Holyfield has been one of those guys who they've been attending a lot of Georgia games. He's been a guy who's been in front of them a number of times. So it, there, there's been a lot of rumored interest in this running back. So it's interesting to hear your kind of prognostication of where he falls on the running back spectrum. Because when I look at him, what I see is I kind of come to the same conclusion. He's a low mileage running back and he does have that power. The only thing that I saw was that he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he wasn't asked to catch the ball a lot. When he is, he does it well, but they didn't do it a ton. So it kind right. of reminds me of almost a Derrick Henry type situation. You know what I mean? Right. He can catch the ball. They just didn't ask him to do it. So right. if he's asked to do it more consistently, he's going to have to get great at it. And if he is drafted by the Bills, he's, he's not going to come here as, hey, he's the answer to all of your running back problems. Exactly. He's going to be a committee-type guy, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. Whereas guys like Anderson may have a chance to be a lead back and maybe more. And I think Alexander Madison is a guy that a lot of people aren't really high on or know a lot about. But this is a, this is a guy who his, his quickness, you know, his, his 20 shuttle, his three cone times are impressive. He runs, he runs with great maturity. Um, and I think that he'd be the type of back that would absorb a lot behind players like Gore and LaShawn McCoy. This is a kid who had a 4.67 GPA at a high school that taught in both English and Spanish. So he was learning trig in Spanish in high school. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he was learning, he was learning like science and math in taught in Spanish in high school. And he came from, you know, and this was in a neighborhood that was, uh, an area of San, um, oh, I don't remember the name, but wherever, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the, the town, but San Bernardino, that's what it is. San Bernardino is a pretty gang-ridden city, mm -hmm. um, and he comes from a really good family that was able to provide a lot of support to him, and he was able to go to school and excel. And I think that he's a smart guy. He knows how to take care of his body. He's figured that out this past year after having an injury that he that requires some surgery after the season, but he played the entire season. And he re realizes, like, I don't want to wear down again. Let me do what I'll call prehab mm -hmm. and learn how to, you, you know, learn nutrition, learn to get my body right. And he played the entire season at a very high level. 
Um, and I think he's a well-rounded back that when I watch him, you can there's plays in his portfolio that you can look at one or two plays and go, there's about 10 or 12 things that he did on that one play that are very, you know, that are indicative of an NFL starter. Um, and he probably would have, if I had gotten a hold of his pro, if his pro day came earlier before I um, posted the RSP, he probably would have been my number three back in this class. Wow. Um, he was actually number five, but he went, he jumped up just a little bit in my rankings if I were to add in that 40 time, just because he does have a little bit of that long speed component and there was little separation between the third and fifth ranked guys. So I, I think he's going to be, but I think a team like the Bears um, might be looking at him a little bit earlier than the way the Bills might be looking at a team. So I wouldn't be surprised if he goes somewhere like that. Now there's two names on everybody's tongue. Real quick, I want you to tell me your just lightning round, your thoughts, Benny Snell and Karen Higdon. Everyone's been talking about them because they were, obviously they play for major schools. Betty Snell made waves at Kentucky this year. It, it was a huge thing to hear, hey, Kentucky's relevant for once, and look at this running back they have. And then Michigan always seems to be fueled by a running back, more so than a quarterback in the last decade. What do you think of these two running backs? Benny Snell to me could be even better than I suspect if his balance is better than what I saw. I just didn't see enough to substantiate a higher grade from him that way. But he's he runs a lot like Jordan Howard. So you're getting a guy who can really be powerful, be a lead back, two down back, who can catch a little bit um, for you between the tackles. Um, but I don't think he's a complete player in the way that you're hoping for, um, you know, if you're looking at an all-around player. But he's a, he's a nice player that I would certainly um, consider. And an alternative to that might be a guy, a guy like John Hilleman, who you can get later, who I think, you know, is even faster. Karan Higdon, you know, he's a he's a gap runner. He plays hard. He's small on the smaller side. I think the sum of his game might be greater than his parts because he's not unbelievably physical. Physical, but he's a guy that when he gets into the open field, he's able to run through a lot of wraps that are high to his frame. He plays with intensity. He can catch the ball. Um, reasonably well, even though, again, he wasn't featured a lot in the passing game either. Um, he's more of a straight-line-ish quick back um, who plays hard. He reminds me of a former AFC East rival running back that you guys probably faced and may remember growing up, or maybe you were too young, but that's uh, Travis Minor, who was out of Florida State. Um, he kind of plays. He kind of plays like a Travis Minor, which, again, I don't think the Bills want Travis Minor if they're looking at a guy no. who plays for or LaShawn McCoy. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> and so, to your point, though, Travis Minor, not a household name. He's a guy who everyone went, what? What happened? Yeah, he made the NFL, he played for a few years, and then he disappeared. Now, every year there's a player or two, highly touted by the draft community, that just epically fails to deliver. We're talking about a guy whose game is incomplete but gets overlooked because of these traits. I mean, you talked about it a lot. People focus on the 40 time. They don't pay attention to some of the things that they should be. And every now and again, you get a team that just decides, hey, we're going to cut our nose off to spite our face because even though we know he's got a bad three-cone time, we know he's got bad hands, we know he has injury, he's injury-prone. But man, did he run that 40 fast. <laughs> we're going to run to the podium with his name. I mean, I'm talking the Bishop Sankeys, Beanie Wells, Monty Ball. I mean, th these type of players. If there's one running back out of this draft that you could caution against the most, who would it be? 
it probably wouldn't be because of 40 time in this particular instance. Um, but I would say, I would say the biggest cautions, cautionary tales for me are guys like Devin Singletary and Travion Williams. I just don't see, I, for me, it's contact balance. That's an issue. Um, for Singletary, it's because of what I talked about earlier, the lack of everything other than vision for, for Williams. It's the fact that he doesn't win collisions with linebackers very often. And he doesn't even win collisions with flat-footed cornerbacks that he's running downhill and hitting head on. He gets knocked backwards or just stifled right away. And, you know, based on 14 years of tracking these types of things, the only back that I've seen who's been the exception to that rule and a posted starter projection for one year is Marlon Mack. And that was recently who didn't have that. Yeah. So, you know, we're looking at, you know, nearly a thousand running backs, maybe more that I've studied where that's, that's been the case, and that may not be, you know, there's other variables involved there, but I'm a little worried about Trayvon Williams being more than a third down change of pace back who has above average um, change of direction skill and quickness, decent, uh, maybe average um, acceleration, but he doesn't have much contact balance. You're scaring so, the hell out of me because I'm afraid that I'm going to hear one of these two names in the first two days of the draft, and I'm just going to drink my way to the bottom of my stairs. That's where that's where we're going to end up. I, I just have this terrible feeling. Now, one of the things our listeners love is listening to how little I know about actual scouting. <laughs> but there's but every every position group I pick out a couple players that I'm in love with, and I like to hear somebody else's thoughts on them just to see if they burst my bubble. Okay. The first one, Miles Sanders. Junior running back out of Penn State. The thing I like about him is he seems like a solid all-around running back. He does everything well while not being the most explosive running back on the face of the planet, which makes me think he'll be available somewhere in the middle rounds. I think that his lack of top speed might depress his stock a little bit, but just his lateral agility, I like that. So when I look at a running back like him, I say, okay, that's a guy who I think with a year or two in an NFL program could be something. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. I think his, his acceleration and agility are top-notch. So you're, you're looking at someone who can make people miss, who can set up creases, and he can hit the crease with some power when he decides to do that. The, the issues with Sanders that you have to be careful about is, one is he um, – Fumbles the ball once every 36 times, which is <laughs> incredibly Christ. poor rate. So wow, and this is after this is this is he fumbled 10 times in in the early part of his career. Like his fumble rate, let me look real quick. It's his fumble rate. Yeah, he had 10 fumbles and 346 touches. So that was um, and five of them came on the first 200 and or the five. <laughs> Came um, on 97 touches Jesus. during his first two years. Is he Steve and then, Slayton? And then he had five more in his first 249 touches, which is still bad. Which is still oh. like it was still a rate below you know one every 50. And for me, like reserve caliber rate is 60 and below, and he was below 60. So you're looking at you want a back to be at least twice that good at that level. So he's got to get better at that. That obviously to get to stay on the field. And the other thing is that he played the shadow of Saquon Barkley. Sometimes when you watch him play, he, he tries to do a little too much because he is just agile enough to get away with it. 
He's actually more agile than Saquon Barkley um, in terms of his times at the, you know, the the shuttle and the the three cone drill. Um, but the thing is, is that he's not as powerful. And also, so when he know, gets met with contact out when he's there. when he's trying to zig and zag, and he gets met with contact, where Saquon would run through it, this guy just gets flattened. Right, it's just not quite there. So <laughs> he's got to learn, and you know. You're influenced by the players that you're playing with sometimes, and I think maybe he, uh, maybe he, he's got to get out under the shadow of playing, being the successor to Saquon Barkley, and play his own game. And when he does that, I think that he plays well. So there's there's definite potential there. Okay, now I'll, I'll level with you. Most of my the guys I like, these are the guys I watch. I watch SEC football. I watch late at. When the SEC games end at 3 or 5 o'clock, I'm stuck watching the Pac-10. So Bryce Love, senior out of Stanford, he had one year of what looked like elite. He had a 2,000-yard season. He was the runner-up for the Heisman in 2017. And at that point, if he had come out in the draft, I would have been okay with drafting Bryce Love in the second round. Maybe even if you traded back to the late first round, I would have been okay with that pick. Now, I mean, because you think about it, what were those seasons? He had 2,000 yards, 20 total touchdowns, and a crazy 8.1 yards per carry. His senior season, he fell right back down to earth. I mean, 739 yards, single-digit touchdowns, and the lowest yards per carry of his whole career, and then ended the season with an ACL there. When I watched him play, he looked like he was explosive in spots, and he was a patient runner. He knew how to follow his blocks. Am I missing something here? What's wrong with this guy that more people aren't talking about him? Be thankful that he didn't come out last year. (laughs) I, I, I followed, I, I remember studying him last year and thinking to myself quietly, well, that's going to be a guy different from the normally because I don't get it. Um, he's, I agree, you know, he keeps his feet moving. He has good burst. He has good first and second change of direction to maintain that burst. He's got some nice moves. You know, certainly someone who can catch the ball. He can hold off a cornerback for 60 to 65 yards. Nice little place to stiff arm. Some balance is decent there. But here's the thing. I felt like that he reacts too much to the idea of having to cut back or bounce outside too often. So he's not as disciplined of a runner as I would expect to see. He gets sideways too early in the collisions and winds up giving up leverage because he's small. And as a result of that, he tries to, instead of hitting head on and using his pads to go over or under, he tries to power and he ends up, not getting much at all because when you it's it's like think about if you've ever helped someone move and they want you to move like some big armoire or a couch or a piano and you're trying to put your body into it you're not just pushing you you, you see the person start to push and then when they realize that they're trying to push the equivalent of a bank fault they start to turn their back into it and start digging in with their back or their side because they think they're going to gain a little more leverage and get more pushed that way. And ultimately, they then they stop and go, I need some help here. That's <laughs> basically where Bryce Love is in terms of his power. Okay. Um, I don't think he has enough contact balance-wise to be anything more than, a, than an exciting third-down player. Wow. Damn. I'm getting crushed over here, Chris. This is, this is terrible. 
All right. Last last guy on my just guys that I'm foaming at the mouth for because I've watched them play and I've I guess maybe I've talked I've romanticized these running backs in my mind. Damian Harris, senior running back out of Alabama. I watch him every week. You can't not fall in love with Alabama running backs because they do it so well. But obviously, Alabama running backs come with some caveats. First and foremost, I mean, when I look at Damian Harris, three-down ability. He can run, he can catch, he can pass, protect very well, as does every Alabama running back. He rarely fumbles, and he's a downhill runner. That's the thing I like about him. He's one cut and go. He kind of makes up his mind, but he's also patient as those blocks develop. But you can watch him sort of make up his mind, like, okay, I'm turning this run inside. Now I'm going to see where it develops and just feel out the creases until I can get maximum yardage. And that's what I'm going to go down. A lot of the pro comps that I've seen for him are Cedric Benson of the Bengals from years ago. And I think that might fit. He's a heady running back. He doesn't have elite top end speed, like you said. (laughs) The 40-yard dash for running backs like Damian Harris, it just means that you're not running the length of the field. You're not going to burn anybody. Right. But with that said, he he doesn't have a second gear. He has one speed. And the thing that scares everybody about Alabama running backs is that some of them, like Eddie Lacy, who, oddly enough, ran a lot like I think Damian Harris runs, <laughs> they, I don't know, they, they have a couple good seasons, but they're not, you know, long-term professional running backs. So Damian Harris seems like a guy who is a smart kid, He seems to know what he's doing in all facets of the game, and he would be an immediate boost of talent to the Bills' locker room. But at the same time, I don't know what his long-term projection is. What is your take on this running back? Yeah, I think he's a solid, good running back who will have a long career, and I agree with you on a lot of fronts with him. Um, The guy I'd probably compare him to more is if, if, if everything works out and the Bills can increase their surrounding talent, he can give you Kareem Hunt-like production, because to me Kareem Hunt is not a special back. He's a very he's a very good back who can deliver high-end production, um, and I think that that's what happened in Kansas City. And I think Damian Harris could do the same thing behind a team that has a good offensive line, does everything really well. Not quite the receiver Jacobs was or Montgomery was, but like you said, every down guy. Worst case scenario, I see him as kind of a Pierre Thomas type of back who can who can played pretty much anywhere you need him to. You might be stuck with being a change of pace for a team most of the time, but you're not looking at your, he's a role player that you just really love having on the field who can kind of be your sixth man who helps out an awful lot. Um, so yeah, I like him a lot. I, he's a top five back in his class for me, but is he going to be, he's that back that's going to be achingly close to being a feature back, but not quite enough that you're going to have a contingent of fans who are like, why don't they give him a chance? You're going to have other fans who are going to be saying that he's not worth that chance and that you're going to have, you know, terminally long arguments between fan, <laughs> with the same fan base about how good he really is. Jesus Christ, I'll tell you this. After the last season we just endured, the last thing I want to do is argue about whether anybody's talented or not. I was on the wrong side. I will admit it of the Josh Allen argument. I was on the wrong side. I, <laughs> either way. It's. I, I'm happy that you at least see some of the things I'm seeing while also just shattering some of the things that I think I've seen and that I've put stock in. Because you do this. 
And that's why you do what you do, and that's why I do what I do. So with that said, folks, we've been doing this for almost an hour. Everything you just heard, that's just the tip of the iceberg from what Matt Waldman can bring in terms of offensive scouting. I'm telling you, if if you're really into this kind of stuff, especially if you have a fantasy football lean towards it, because like I said, Chris and I, we took his advice on one running back and it damn near won us our leagues. I will say this, go check out his stuff. Matt Waldman, rsp.com, mattwaldman.com. I mean, if we had to close this out, tell people what you have coming up and where they can find some of your stuff. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you're going to, I have a podcast you can find on iTunes, Google, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean called Matt Waldman's RSP Cast. Um, I've done some recent stuff where I've profiled each of the classes and talked about kind of the scouting behind it and the process behind it in more detail, as well as players who I really liked or I found surprising on some level or some sort of information that will be helpful from that informative standpoint. Um, you know, at the RSP site, MattWaldmanRSP.com, you know, I have content coming out every week. Mark Schofield writes for me there as well, so he does his takes on quarterbacks in addition to the ones that I give. Friend of so the I'll show, find- Mark Schofield. Oh, got you know what? For a Patriots fan, he's not bad people. He's not bad people at all. He's a for sure, you know. So, so there's that, you know. I mean, that's that's some good stuff that we have going on there, and um, you know, certainly I'll be giving insights. Some of the things I'll talk about with like running back archetypes, as well as different types of scouting pointers and and different things that I do. Also at my YouTube channel, the RSP Film Room, where you can find over 300 video clips of basically breakdowns of a play or a couple of plays or even sometimes I'll do an hour-long breakdown of players like you know Tyree Jackson or Brett Rippon or Kyler Murray or Joshua Jacobs and you know you can see hour-long breakdowns of multiple plays from these guys that I review and show you kind of what I'm looking for why I see what I see and you can subscribe to that at Matt Waldman's RSP film room so that's that's what goes on with uh with the RSP publication at matt waldman on twitter go follow him wealth of knowledge for the offensive skill positions especially the running backs it was such a great conversation was it yes it was <laughs> i had fun he shot us down on bryce love for god's sake <laughs> that, that, that was a blow to my ego right there the bryce love i thought that guy was gonna be an all-star i was like oh god if the bills can only get this guy well Maybe he's right. Maybe it's all for the best. Just like it's for the best that all of you or whoever can make it shows up this Saturday at the Rusty Buffalo to watch us on this panel discussion. It's Potathon 2, hosted by Trainwreck Sports. You guys have to come out for it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, come see your teeth, my mohawk. (laughs) Booze, pizza. There's just... It's going to be a lot of fun. We're giving away Wise Guys gift certificates. We're going to have questions. It's a Q&A. You're going to be on video with the Rockpile Report. If you answer correctly, you get free pizza from Wise Guys Pizzeria in South Buffalo. Who wants to argue with that? Or if we forget to do this because we've been drinking so much, <laughs> you can just ask me for a gift card and I'll give it to you because I'll be in the bag. In the bag. Guys, either way, it's going to be a great time. Thank you so much for showing up tonight. Thank you so much to Matt Waldman 
for taking time out of his schedule. He did Sigmund Bloom shows tonight. Chris. He was doing a, a, a Bill's Wire podcast, too, after ours. People will get hundreds of thousands of downloads, and then he comes and talks to us. It's fantastic. We love him for it. We appreciate him making time. Guys, I'm blessed to be able to do this every week. And I'm just happy you all show up and appreciate it. The next two weeks are going to be packed because we're going to be talking about the trenches. The places where this draft is most plentiful in prospects. High-level prospects. Where the Bills are most likely looking for the first two rounds. Yeah, next week will be Russ Brown from uh, Cover One You know, with Eric Turner. He does some draft stuff over there. Specializing in the offensive line. That's going to be fun next week. It's going to be incredible. Guys, thank you so much for coming. we got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. That was just Matt Waldman. Thank you for listening to this week's Rock Pile Report.